Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast are brought to you by U.S. Soy. The farmers and partners at U.S. Soy are exploring the complex problems and innovative solutions of an interconnected world. Nothing brings back memories like mum's home cooking. Take a bite, close your eyes, and feel like a kid again. But why stop a nostalgia when you can take a flavor trip? More than a meal service, Flavor Trip introduces a whole new way to travel, ancestral cuisine. Based on your unique genetics and family origin, the experts at Flavor Trip design a menu for the ages. Boric from the Ottoman Empire, haggis with neeps and tatties. Don't just footprint a family recipe, taste exactly what your great times ate, grandparents ate. To start your food journey, Stare directly into the commerce hall and think of the key phrase, flavor trip. So food traditions, Marshall. Mm-hmm. Uh, food traditions, cultural family identities are expressed through food, time-tested food rituals in families for generations. I was trying to think about mine, and the thing that first came to mind was my grandmother's coffee cake. Mm. And it's... I mean, it's a really good coffee cake, but every time now my sister will make it, you know, as a present for everyone. And every time we eat it, we cry. <laughs> we, it's like one of those nostalgic things from childhood, Nani's coffee cake. And it's, I just, and I'm a mess. My dad's a mess. Like it's, I mean, it's good coffee cake, but is I don't it, know. Is that good? I, no, you know what? I don't cry about this, but I probably should. I was thinking about this. I loved my mom's potato salad. <laughs> like it was it was one of those things that uh, it was every like maybe like every couple of weeks or so, maybe once a month or something like that. Sunday dinner, going with you know, hanging out with the rest of the family and my mom's potato salad was so good. I could not eat anyone else's potato salad no matter who made it, no matter where it was made. To this day, <laughs> I have not had potato salad, <laughs> I don't think. No, maybe one time, and it was okay. It was good, but I can't. It's got to be mom's. Do you remember her secret ingredient? There were no secret ingredients. It's just about the amount of the ingredients that you use. Nothing was secret about it. You just had to get it right. You just had to get it right. <laughs> there is something so fundamental about food, Right. So universal, so deeply personal, so timeless that it's impossible to talk about the future of food without considering its history and our personal histories with food. So do you remember the last time you took a bite of some nostalgic meal and were transported back to some time and place? We certainly do. Scientists have already proven the link between memory and taste, which generations ago may have been survival conditioning to avoid something poisonous. And the same part of the brain that processes smell and emotion also forms long-term memories. So let's take a flavor trip. I'm Marshall. I'm Amanda. This is Eating Tomorrow from the Groundwork Podcast, a conversation about the future of food and how we'll make it. Today on Eating Tomorrow, preserving the history of what we eat. We'll talk about secret messages and secret recipes, offer some bite-sized indigenous wisdom, and consider how the future of food might be free. We'll also answer the question, why do we choose to keep certain food traditions and lose others to the passage of time? 
Beneath the permafrost of Spitsbergen Island in Norway sits the Svalbard Seed Vault. This formidable structure of rough-hewn stone houses over a million seed samples from all over the world. It's a demonstration of global agricultural cooperation and a safeguard of the food security of humanity, right up until it is infiltrated by the world's luckiest Arctic lemming. Seeds are the beginning of every crop we have. They carry forth the genetic material of their parents. They develop in its image, and they are remarkable little things. Nearish Svalbard, there's a plant called the Arctic lupine. Its seeds have been successfully germinated after being dormant in permafrost for 10,000 years. Other seeds have evolved to develop crazy ways to travel far and away from their parent plant, called dispersal mechanisms, like hitching a ride on animal fur, or, in the case of the aptly named touch-me-not plant, straight up exploding. And we've probably all watered a seed to get it growing, but other seeds, like those from the Banksia species in Australia, are triggered to germinate by fire, taking advantage of the newly nutrient-rich soil. So like human DNA, seeds carry genetic data. And that's precious enough, we've decided to lock them up in a Norwegian vault. Pat Gwynn is the former senior director of the Cherokee Nation's Environmental Resources Group. He actually got some seeds into the Svalbard vault on behalf of the Cherokee Nation. So we did four varieties of corn. We did our white eagle and the three flower corns that I, I've mentioned. We did four different varieties of Fasciolus vulgaris, just beans. Brown turkey gizzard, black turkey gizzard, trail of tears. He faced the particularly daunting challenge of reclaiming the genetic integrity of Cherokee crops, that precious seed data, which had been suffering since the Cherokees forced relocation in the 1830s. He noted that, going back to pre-Columbian times, indigenous growers knew the importance of seed maintenance. They were smart enough and knew enough, far more than probably what we know today, and each one of those varieties was separated by a mountain range. That's how particular and how careful they were to maintain the genetics in 1491. You know, they would use a, a true mountain range as barriers to keep those corn strains pure. A new environment and cross-pollination caused these plants to lose the characteristics that made them special. So Pat got to the multi-year business of breeding them back in, aided by some multi-generational wisdom from the tribe. In this case, a corn characterized by the image of a white eagle in each kernel. Carl White Eagle Barnes. He was one of the last growers of, of Cherokee White Eagle, and he was able to tell us what morphology of White Eagle corn should look like. You breed the corn, and then you take each ear of corn, you inspect it for what you want it to have. Does it have a red cob? Does it have eagles in each uh, kernel? Yes. Is, is it properly dented? Is it properly colored? Corn is the easiest thing to have genetic shift. If something has 99% integrity, if you improve that genetic integrity by 1% each year, you never get back to 100%. It's just the cruel nature of mathematics and, and, uh, and genetics. Once admitted into the Svalbard vault, depending on their genetic makeup, seeds need to be replaced every few years. And Pat's description of that genetic drift is something against which growers must be constantly vigilant. An important source of vegetarian protein, cooking oil, and animal feed, 
yes, we're talking about the soybean, has multiple varieties deposited in the Svalbard seed vault. No surprise there. Faux Valley, like many American small towns, has a community table, a gathering place for a decent meal and a catch-up with neighbors. In this case, a beloved diner, the Dove. But like in much of America, the rules of kindness have been slipping in recent years. Now, difference of opinion easily becomes a shouting match. In a spark of genius, Patty, the owner, started selling her handshake pie. It was really just her strawberry rhubarb, but that pie was so dang good, she could have called it a dirty handkerchief, and it would still sell out. And see, Patty only sells the slices in pairs, and only to a pair of strangers, or as strange as you can be in a small town. And sure enough, mediated by an undeniably good pie, simple peace accords can be made. Yes, this is a good slice of pie. Or, yes, this has been a wet spring. Yes, that Taylor boy is no good. Consider for a second that meals aren't just about consuming calories, but about breaking bread. Or that seeds aren't just a commodity, but a means of cultural continuity. Like, did you know that Cherokee seeds, like the ones Pat mentioned, can't be offered for sale? Only gifted. And you might arrive upon an idea worth germinating. See what I did there? Is the future of food free? We talked with Jonas Verhes, a Brussels-based social entrepreneur and co-founder of Casanade. It's a restaurant run by volunteers and the meals have no prices. Sort of. People that come eat, they can volunteer. And people that are volunteering, they also eat with the people that come in to eat. Uh, so there is a bit of a blur between like the people delivering the service and people receiving the service. So we just, we don't talk about clients and employees. We, we talk about, it's like we say that everyone is a participant. And so that's also the idea of this gift economy, like a market economy towards gift economy. It's a, it's a shift from consumption towards um, participation. So we say that everyone is a participant and you can be like a participant in many ways. But that's the good thing about it. Like it's not important that everyone gets it or understands it for it to function. It, it functions because we we create a connection, we create the uh, social mix on different levels. So I think, yeah, it's the result that counts. Some people eat without paying every day. And that's okay. The point isn't about what you pay, but what you value. In this case, community. Jonas called out how Brussels is incredibly diverse. Even though the majority of people speak French, the majority of people also speak it as a second or third language. And Casanade became a place where people could go from being transactional others to being neighbors. I think it works in any community because the idea of gift economy is that you give something unconditionally without expecting something in return. Sure, we all need food to survive, but these ways of looking at food as a right and as fundamental to human dignity may serve as a model for the future of food. Or maybe it's a past we've purposely forgotten. Kimberly Tilson Braveheart is head chef and founder of Chef Braveheart. 
She's a member of the Oglala Lakota Nation of the Pine Ridge Indian Reserve in South Dakota. And her culinary and cultural work explores indigenous identity through food, how that was taken away, and how we might bring it back. Traditionally, I grew up in a very traditional home, meaning my mom is one of the few fluent Lakota speakers on our reservation. She's an oral historian and a cultural educator. And so I grew up with like a lot of wild game, a lot of traditional foods. That's really the basis of Lakota diet is dried fruit, berries, and protein. And it was surprising to me as an adult that nobody was eating them. This change in diet was an economic or environmental or the aftershocks of Manifest Destiny. So her work aims to bring indigenous food and culture into common conversation. It is bridge building on a beautiful and brutal past. I wanted to honor and celebrate my people and my culture and my history through food. And I feel like food is this wonderful, great connector. When people have the ability to experience another culture through food, it kind of allows you to take down your armor I really try to utilize indigenous ingredients, but in a modern, accessible way. So the average mom, no matter her cultural background or ability to cook, has the knowledge to access indigenous ingredients, including them in their weekly diets, just as people have like Italian night or taco night. Chef Braveheart started catering events, amplifying indigenous presence, public speaking, and helping launch indigenous businesses. She draws inspiration from her family history, a Jewish and indigenous background, sharpening her skills and her stories. What I was learning, it was the same thing that when I was home on the reservation, it was like this, the tenderness of care about the food and about the ingredients, but also like the story, if that makes sense, that every time that I was learning something new, it wasn't just about like the the actual recipe or the technique. It was like the story of family. And I believe that both Jewish and Lakota um, cultures are very similar in that rootedness of family and what's important and the ability to celebrate life even though you've come from an oppressed history. We asked Chef Braveheart, what's next? She said, amplify indigenous food and stories in every city in America. Address the lower life expectancy of the Lakota people and have the uncomfortable conversations. At those conversations, when you're having dinner with your family, talking with your children about, hey, you know, we reside on Lakota territory. We reside in on, on Pueblo territory. And let's honor that land and let's honor the people of that land. We are the original inhabitants of this continent. And I think that we should, our story and our history should be in every household across America. So, recipes are culture. Food is identity. It's no surprise we defend it with our lives. There she sits, snoring away, your beloved Nana. Put out by the over-soaked slice of rum cake, ignorant of the looming betrayal at her granddaughter's hands. In front of you, her pantry door, the gate to Fort Knox. And behind that, gold, Nana's closely guarded recipe for yummy tummy lemon bars. You reach for the handle, pause, a twinge of guilt. Then the tart, delicious memory of the treat that almost broke the Presbyterian Bake Club. One last glance over your shoulder at the kindly old woman fast asleep in her chair. She'll never know. 
You give the handle a turn, flinching for fear at the metal creak that will spoil your heist. Nothing. As the pantry door opens, blue light from the television spills across canned peaches and tricolored pasta. Wider still, illuminating meticulously organized canned vegetables. And finally, at the back of the pantry, where her recipes hide in unassuming boxes, stands a kindly old woman with folded arms, a face that says, over my dead body. These handed down, or heirloom, recipes have a story behind them, a history that gives them a deeper meaning than just a list of ingredients and instructions. They're not just about the food. They're about the people who made the food and the memories associated with it. And they're usually accompanied by a unique twist, a secret ingredient, or some family lore that makes its DNA unique. Written recipes go back a little farther than that weathered 3 by 5 card in your grandma's handwriting, too. The Mesopotamians were recording recipes 4,000 years ago. And like today, food was important and ceremonial. They offered gulupu, those date-filled cookies, to the Sumerian goddess Inanna during the New Year and Spring Festivals, so it needed to be reliably tasty enough to please a god. Even though recipes are generally meant to reveal the technique of some cook way back when, they have a rich history of concealing things, too. In the 16th century, the imprisoned Mary, Queen of Scots, communicated with her supporters via encoded and metaphorical language in her recipes. In the mid-19th century, author Isabella Beaton created a cipher in her cookbook to help coordinate the abolitionist movement. We'll encounter a lot of food as activism in this series. And recipes, too, have a history of protest. Despite having no access to actual ingredients and relying only on memory, not to mention suffering under terrible conditions, cookbooks and recipes have been among the precious personal artifacts smuggled out of gulags and wartime prison camps. There are accounts of bound scraps of cigarette paper containing hand-scratched recipes escaping a Nazi camp in the seam of a dress or POWs who fought despair by filling their diaries with a food that tasted like home. As the authors of these recipes faced the possibility of their death, they were using them as a legacy. They were a protest against the circumstances that would strip them of their identity and humanity. A way of saying... I am worthy of being remembered. Okay, there's some groundwork. So what can we do about it? What do we choose to carry forward from our food history? And what does that say about what's important to us? What do we choose to protect? And from what sorts of threats? If you ever think, well... How could I ever use food, of all things, to ensure the future of my community and culture? Consider the power of local organization, like a farmer's market. In some areas, farmer's markets are an indulgence. In others, a community-maintained oasis in a food desert. These nutritious, high-quality goods are the opposite of, quote-unquote, poor food, and yes, sometimes priced accordingly, but Amber Ferguson thinks it can work another way. She's co-founder and executive director of Rogue Food Unites, a group organized in response to 2020's double whammy pandemic and Oregon wildfires. Everything we do here is rooted in hospitality. So like creating a sense of goodness. Um, And I think that in times of disaster, we can still do that. 
in times of crisis, there can still be a center point that is like, okay. And whether that's food or music or church, like, but for me, that is food. And it really is like in culture here is community. And food is just the first step. If I can nourish you, then maybe you have the strength to like go fill out that other piece of paperwork that might get you into the shelter you need. One of Amber's programs upends the pricey reputation of farmers markets. These are the coordinated efforts of farmers, community leaders, and state resources to provide no-cost, no-judgment food in an act of community service and nutritional justice. Farmers markets are placed on bus lines so that they are accessible to those that otherwise don't necessarily have access. There's still so much need that we can't address to those that are homebound. But just taking away all the barriers, anyone can come to our market and shop and get treated with care and dignity and experience community. And I think that the impacts of that are really palpable on mental health as well. We hear often, you saved my life. And that's like so amazing to just be able to hand somebody a bag of groceries and that that is saving them. Consider Amber's growth goals for Rogue Food Unites. They started by meeting the food needs of 2,500 displaced people but they've set their sights on creating emergency food caches to weather the biggest catastrophes with the power of local organization. Our intention right now is we're building out a commercial kitchen to produce MREs. Our goal is to do them in a much more um, high quality, like high bar meal, so that like any one of us would want to enjoy that meal. So restaurant quality, regionally sourced ingredients. And the goal for us is to produce 30 million of those meals to be stationed in many places in every single county in the state. All of this would be palletized so that a drone can lift them and drop them anywhere. Lastly, exploring some other things to consider from this episode. Making history the future. One, educating yourself on the indigenous history of where you live, what food traditions that brings, and what was taken. Two, if you plant, getting involved in your local seed exchange. Yes, there probably is one. If you eat, familiarizing yourself with unique local ingredients and the restaurants and markets that sell them. Three, exploring what history might be hiding on a 3 by 5 card in your family pantry. You never know. Special thanks to Pat Gwynn, Senior Director of the Cherokee Nation's Environmental Resources Group. Congrats on that retirement, Pat. Amber Ferguson, Co-Founder and Executive Director of Rogue Food Unites. Jonas Verhess, Co-Founder and Manager of Casanade. Kimberly Tilson Braveheart, Head Chef and Founder of Chef Braveheart. This is Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast, a new kind of story about the future of food and how we'll make it. Brought to you by U.S. Soy.